The International Baccalaureate would like to bring you a special series entitled Thinking About Day One, A Trauma-Informed Reopening of Schools. My name is Robert Kilty, and in this third episode, we speak with Laura Van Der Lipsky, founder and CEO of the Trauma Stewardship Institute and best-selling author. Laura's first work was Trauma Stewardship, an Everyday Guide to Caring for Self While Caring for Others. And her most recent book is entitled The Age of Overwhelm, Strategies for the Long Haul. We are now speaking with Laura Van Dernut Lipsky, founder and CEO of the Trauma Stewardship Institute and best-selling author. Laura, thank you for being with Ivy Voices today. Thank you so much for having me. So you bring a lot of expertise to this conversation as you've worked with countless organizations grappling with post-disaster response. And on top of your expertise, you have been an educator as well. So you can relate to the challenges our schools are facing when thinking about reopening. And outside of the logistical challenges of meeting the CDC and state guidelines, social distancing on buses and in classrooms, trauma-informed care and schooling uh, should also be top of mind for many of our school leaders. And so when you think about overwhelm and trauma, what does that look like? What should principals and educators be looking for? Yeah, well, I want to start by just appreciating you for thinking about it. I know the amount of logistics and details and minutia that you all are having to triage is just no words for that. So I really appreciate any attention being given to being able to approach this while being very, very mindful about trauma and overwhelm that folks have experienced and likely still will be experiencing. I think that one thing that can be really helpful as schools go through these next few stages of opening and then maybe having to ebb and flow, certainly with the health of their region, is to understand that this is going to continue to affect everybody really differently. So I think being able to understand that folks' experience of this, what has gone on with the pandemic, is personal and it is subjective and it will continue to be so that, you know, there are some common themes that we see. But I think that an approach where we have a lot of grace and we have a lot of humility and we're able to really root deeply, you know, in Buddhism and other traditions called beginner's mind, that we have huge amount of openness and curiosity to whatever is presenting in that moment. And that we're being very cautious that we're not doing a lot of generalizing and that we are able to be as comfortable as possible being in a, in a really strong learning mode because how this affected folks, what went on in people's homes, how people are feeling about balancing, you know, communities opening up versus still being really conservative in terms of the health consequences, how everybody's been so affected differently in terms of class and race and immigration status and social dynamics. There's just so many moving pieces. And so I think 
a really primary place to start is trying to come from an orientation of having a lot of humility, and a lot of grace with oneself and with each other, and really being in a beginner's mind. I mean, really being able to be very, very open to learning about kind of what every child is presenting with, what every family is presenting with, what every teacher is presenting with, and taking it from there. Absolutely. And there are some words in your book that were very new to me, even, you know, being in education for 20 years now. And this is this process of metabolizing saturation and hemorrhaging. Can you define what those words mean? So when we look at vicarious trauma, sometimes it's called any number of things, vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, cumulative toll. I was on an international think tank where we were supposed to come up with a single term, but we failed. So we still are using these terms largely interchangeably. But, you know, we're looking at when you are exposed to hard things over time, suffering, crisis, trauma, overwhelm, what is that cumulative toll individually and what is that cumulative toll collectively? So when we think about how to sustain when you're exposed to these things, part of what we're looking at is what conditions can you put in place individually and then systemically and structurally, what conditions can we put in place? So you're able to metabolize whatever it is you're experiencing or you're bearing witness to. When we're talking about metabolizing, much of what we're looking at is that we don't want anything stagnating in our nervous system. We don't want anything accumulating in our nervous system, residing in our nervous system, taking root in our nervous system. You can think about that nervous system as an individual. You can think about the nervous system as their family, their guardians. You can certainly think about that nervous system as the classroom and as the larger school community. And so we don't want stagnation. And having conditions in place so you can metabolize, so you can move anything that you're experiencing and bearing witness through through that nervous system will allow a lack of stagnation, which means that nothing's accumulating in your nervous system. If we don't have those conditions in place, then when your nervous system is constantly being pulled in, even if not the extreme of the fight, flight, or freeze response, but just if your nervous system is being activated and reactivated and reactivated throughout your days and nights in terms of having to deal and tend and respond to whatever's arising, right? If you're not moving it regularly through your nervous system, it doesn't take long for everything you're experiencing to slowly start accumulating in your nervous system. And at some point we become saturated. So that saturation might surface in terms of you feel incredibly tired. That saturation might surface where you start feeling very, very numb. It might manifest in feeling cynical. It might manifest in you know, a lot of the physical pieces of just headaches, backaches, you know, increased depression, increased anxiety. There's any number of ways that that saturation, if you're not familiar with that language of saturation, that you would recognize some of the ways that it manifests. While, while we never want to be saturated, part of what gets very hard with the saturation is it generally doesn't stop with saturation. At some point, you'll see a hemorrhaging out. So a colleague of mine in Oakland once talked about for many people, the way they hemorrhage out is an internal bleeding, you know, so folks who internalize everything. 
And other folks, the way they hemorrhage out is that there's like an exuding of toxicity, right? And sometimes it's just like a total rupturing. So we have been seeing this for a long time. I know you're working with folks around the world. Certainly in the United States, we have been seeing for a long time entire communities hemorrhaging out and as a society, a large scale hemorrhaging. And definitely since the pandemic, that has increased. And then in the last couple of weeks, with many of the horrors of structural supremacy and systematic oppression coming to the surface, there is an additional layer of that saturation and hemorrhaging that we're seeing. So when we look at how to sustain and as your schools are opening, some of what we're wanting to pay very close attention to is how saturated individuals are as they're coming back to school, right? And then what conditions the schools can have in place so that there is very concrete, reasonable, tactical ways, you know, to help folks continue to metabolize what they've been through, right? So the backlog and then what they'll continue to go through. Exactly. And I love how the recommendations for that space and those constructive practices that you recommend in the book really translate to school environments too. When you look at a classroom in a school that minimizes distractions to zero versus constant distractions of bells and phones and classroom interruptions, creating the space for being present to have that curiosity and to allow that type of curiosity and even minimizing screen time in a way, especially considering how much screen time we've endured in these school closures. It's just very helpful, I think, for a lot of us to think about how do we provide that space for the constructive practices for students to metabolize so they do not become saturated in hemorrhage because that's when we lose them emotionally, socially, academically. And in terms of this second endemic that we're facing. And so, you know, in addition to COVID-19, we are now faced with an old, but now very visible and equally painful pandemic. And that is the pandemic of racism and oppression. As schools think about reopening, how should we as educators and school leaders be thinking about this additional layer of trauma that has undoubtedly affected students and families of color? I think that Folks being seen, you know, that experience that you've had in your life where you feel seen by another, you know, and that is incredibly powerful. And I think that this too is where that softening and having that humility and having that grace and just a desire to create a lot of spaciousness around this, right? And whatever ways that the adults can see each other and again, have a beginner's mind because there's no uniform experience here. Certainly not with oppression either. There are some things that, you know, those who are from historically oppressed or historically marginalized, historically underserved communities, you know, there's lots that we might have some shared experiences, but we want to acknowledge how different everybody's experiences are. And I think with the oppression and with the supremacy coming to the surface like this, that many people will be very close to that fight, flight, freeze response that happens when one's nervous system gets really overwhelmed. 
And we're kind of seeing that collective fight, flight, freeze response as well. And so one strategy is to try to really acknowledge each other and see each other. And even if that is, you know, a teacher being able to say, look, I am not going to presume to know what the last three months, six months, year, depending how this all unfolds, has been like for any of you. But I am here and I am listening and I avail myself to you. So I don't think we want to get into kind of the performative, you know, like how many, like what t-shirt should you be wearing and what banner should be up at your school? And I really think trying to the best of one's ability, even amidst all the other logistics, again, I know that are being navigated and trying to figure out how you're going to teach calculus and tend to World War I history and everything else, is creating those sacred moments. They don't have to be long, but creating those sacred moments where the teachers are able, for example, with their students to be able to communicate, like, I see you, I avail myself, I'm here. What I don't know about this on some level is everything, you know, and I'm here and here's how you can access me. And I think that that is very, very meaningful to kind of reach through so much of what can feel like a lot of distance right now to see each other. I think the other thing is recognizing what happens when someone is saturated and when someone is in that fight, flight, freeze and how, you know, there's the cognitive narrowing, right, that it can be really, really, really hard for folks to focus. And when you see that level of saturation, or for example, you know, some of your colleagues might be really familiar with the language around cognitive overload and decision fatigue. And knowing that there can be, you know, the more cognitive overload folks have going on, the more irritable people usually are, the more aggravated folks usually are, the more intense (laughs) folks usually are. And also, exhausted. I mean, I think that is the thing with everyone I'm working with in every field around the world right now. That is probably the primary thing I'm hearing folks talk about is that they are tired on a level. It it will either swinging between massive amounts of anxiety. So you're kind of like hopped up on the adrenaline or just tired in an indescribable way. And so I think it'll be very helpful for schools to create a huge amount of spaciousness right? Just be very, very, very realistic about the expectations this fall or this winter or whenever schools open. We, of course, want to maintain high expectations. That's a way of honoring folks. So we want to make sure high expectations are there, but that they've got to be realistic and then backed with a tremendous amount of compassion and empathy. I couldn't agree more. And after reading some of the suggestions in your book, I really saw a possibility and a potential to rethink school altogether, especially thinking about your, you know, suggestions for natural connection and how being in nature allows us to metabolize. And it's just like, just wouldn't it be beautiful if every classroom had access to that type of experience as a very specific strategy to help students metabolize. In terms of a very important group here that's often not brought into the conversation, and that is our teachers. Can you speak to the social and emotional needs of educators in this unusual situation? I mean, because especially when I think of your first book, Trauma Stewardship, that is every single teacher and counselor that I know as they give their hearts and souls to children around the world every single day. So do you have any thoughts or recommendations for how we need to be caring for our educators as we come back in the fall? Yeah, I mean, 
things were so brutal for so many educators pre-pandemic. And now there's a pandemic. And then, you know, at least in the United States and many other places, now there's this conversation that is surfacing more and more about structural supremacy and systematic oppression. So how any educator is supposed to be sorting out on top of that, like teaching physics and you know, walking mm-hmm. kids through, you know, third grade reading. I mean, teachers being able to be as self-respecting as they possibly can and have a huge amount of empathy for themselves about what this is going to be like. And so anything in their personal lives that they can possibly do to, you know, Stevie Wonder says, handle your business, like anything they can be doing to nourish themselves, to tend to themselves, to make sure that their mind, body, spirit is as recalibrated as possible coming into this, you know, next phase of schooling will be critical. Now, obviously that's easier said than done. I've been working with educators for 33 years. I mean, that was hard before. And then you have all these educators who've been trying to move things online and be like all these tech wizards, even though that's not their strong suit. And then they've got their own kids at home and then their in-laws are living with them. And it's just like one thing after another. So the idea that any teachers are going to come into this next phase, like nourished and, you know, fortified. I mean, I understand it just sounds so naive that the teachers might be coming in immensely depleted. But part of the reason, I just want to emphasize that their ability to sustain in any way is going to be really connected to anything they can be doing for them. So understanding like that it is going to be critical that they are engaging every single practice they know to keep themselves well. In terms of then on the school front, Again, the schools being able to, you know, it's never helpful to drop all expectations. So that's not what I'm saying. But the leadership of the schools, similarly as the teachers, you know, being able to acknowledge, look, we're not going to presume to know what it was like in your homes and what you've been going through since, you know, the last many, many months. So here's what we're doing. We're going to be doing the best we can. Here's the ways that you can ask for help. You know, here's the resources that we have, including telling them what they don't have. I think that's what's really important with leadership is being able to articulate very, very clearly and apologize when necessary. You know, not in a self-deprecating way, but we are so sorry for everything you're being asked to do. Here's what the state still wants. Here's what the federal government still wants. Here's what our superintendent still wants. Also, we don't have increased resources. We are very, very, very sorry for what you're up against. You like just over communicating empathy, compassion. And again, like apologizing, not in a self-effacing, but just like we see you, we hear you. We're we're sorry for everything that is imperfect. Yeah. Also, here are the hopes, you know, for the next, I mean, every 10 minutes right now feels like an eternity. So I don't even know how long you're gonna lay out, like a quarter or semester. But here's here's the plan. Here's what we're gonna try to be doing. And For you teachers to understand, it will be a miracle if a child can come in and sustain focus for a prolonged period of time. You know, that will really be something. So here's some things that we want to just, you know, in the past, we didn't have a lot of physical activity built in. You know, in the past, we really struggled with recess. In the past, we really struggled with kids getting outside. But 
here's the deal. We know that's like one of the most efficient and effective things you can do for that immediate hit of metabolizing is get some heart rates up, you know, get some sweat going. So we're going to build in more time to have kids moving. Also, we're going to get outside any chance we can. Even if your school isn't like at the base of the, you know, some gorgeous mountain range, you're going to get outside. Like we know, again, very efficient way to re-regulate one's nervous system. We're going to do that. We're suggesting we start every single class starts with taking a couple minutes and all the kids going around, including the teachers and the adults in the room, just really rapid fire, just saying what's going well, just one thing they're grateful for. You know, just some practices doesn't have to cost any additional money, doesn't have to be a whole big thing, right? But that you're pulling on some of what we know to be some very efficient and very effective practices of buying yourself another hour. Desperate times, desperate measures here. So, okay, let's uh, get some movement going. Let's get a little outdoors. Let's uh, like focus on a frame of gratitude here. And then let's see if we can get through 30 minutes of math, you know? But I think the real being very realistic about the expectations piece, because some kids, you know, the pandemic, maybe their whole family has been like training for a pandemic their whole life. Like it was awesome. Like they did painting and they learned to sing. And, you know, th that's going to be true for some kids. As you know, I mean, for other families, domestic violence, brutal, brutal, child abuse, sexual assault, like there's all these other things that have been very hard for your educators all along that you put people in an isolated enclosed space for a long time and it's that much more heartbreaking, right? And that included with everything we're seeing of how the pandemic's affected folks of color disproportionately, what's gone on in immigrant and refugee communities. So I, I don't want your educators like having a future trip. I don't want them having to like brace, you know, and like be on their heels and kind of this whole anticipatory dread. But part of what I'm trying to communicate is you're balancing the expectations we want to keep because we want to have that like we believe in you spirit, right, for the young people. And also just for the educators to really have a lot of spaciousness for themselves about the additional challenges that they're going to be navigating. And so I know so many educators, because of the the way that the education system has been structured in very imperfect ways, that it can be very disheartening and dispiriting on a good day for educators, just feeling like right. they're not doing enough and feeling like they always should be doing more. And with what they're going to be navigating now, I, of course, am concerned that that is going to be heightened and that for many people in their communities, you know, social services might be tapped out in a way that they're not even available as they used to be, right? Maybe the counseling services are completely maxed out. Possibly the domestic violence services are maxed out. So all of those things might also present additional barriers. And so I think having very realistic expectations of oneself is going to be important and to make sure you're not isolated and that every educator knows where they can go to ask for help. I think that is incredibly wise counsel. And for all of our teachers and educators out there, we love you. We appreciate you. We see you. Any other suggestions or concrete strategies for school leaders? I mean, especially as we think about caring for our entire school community now. We're talking not just our students, but we are talking about our teachers and our families. Any other concrete strategies for school leaders to think about as we think about day one and that first week of school? That's a great question. I mean, so where and when possible, as many opportunities for movement, you know, physical, anything. And that can be 
the whole school participates in some Tai Chi together, right? The whole school goes outside. I mean, just something that actually the physical metabolizing of it, like, let's just keep things moving through the nervous system. Because the other thing, remember, that might be happening too is that humans, when they feel under threat, there's a way that frequently humans will hold it together, like really hold it together in some spectacular ways. And then when they perceive they're in a safe environment, that is often where the complete decompensation can happen. That's like they kind of thaw out and like come into, as we say in early childhood ed, right? Your full range of feelings. So part of what I'm anticipating is that there are gonna be a number of kids who have really been holding it together during quarantine and tracking closely that their mother could not handle one more thing, you know, that their grandparents they were living with could not handle one more thing, that there was an eggshell environment, maybe at home because of any number of stressors, right? And part of what I'm anticipating is that for a number of kids, when they get to school, I'm not saying school is perceived as a safe place for every child by any stretch, but there are a number of kids for whom school has been a haven in the past, right? Has been like this real sanctuary in the past, not every child, but for many kids. And for those kids, I'm anticipating that there might be a significant, like, okay, now this is my time to actually fall apart, right? So in that spirit, and then just across the board, any amount of movement that could be incorporated in would be helpful. Any amount of being outside, I think would be really, really helpful. I think having opportunities for, and again, these can be very efficient practices. So like your chemistry class doesn't have to have like only journaling happen for the first six weeks, but you could take the first two minutes of every class and have every child just spend a couple minutes writing down kind of some highs and lows of their time in quarantine and the pandemic, you know, like, like a purging, you know what I'm saying? Like a, like a real, just like a flushing out of just like, what was hard? You're going to get, okay, you got two minutes, write down everything you can think of that was, that's been hard for you during pandemic. And then on the other side of the paper, write down everything that went well, that you are grateful for. And I think doing that not once, but regularly, because I think what would be helpful to address is that backlog of what's been building up in the kids about just like what was hard and what was scary and what was awful and giving them some opportunities to really detox, like to move that through, move that out of their individual system and their collective system. I do think pulling in, and there's a lot of science behind this and the Madison public schools have done some wonderful work around this in Wisconsin, but pulling in opportunities on the regular of just like, okay, what's one thing we're grateful for? Let's just go around, everybody shout out, like everybody just take a moment. Like what's one thing that's going well, one thing you're grateful for? One thing that went well during quarantine or one thing you're grateful for about, you know, being back at school. I think those can be really, really important. I think it could be really, really nice to have just a little bit of increased time for sharing with each other, you know, like people just having some more informal time and space. Pre-pandemic, we talked a lot about how isolation is so damaging. And then one of the things that the pandemic called for was a lot of isolation. And so trying to interrupt some of that isolation now where people just have some time to kind of really share what, what this was like for you, right? And so maybe you have kids break up into small groups and do some of that, you know, facilitated sharing. And again, which as you know, 
the other thing that kids do sometimes is they really try to shield the adults in their life from just how depressed they are, just how anxious they are, just how scared they've been, just how sad. So I think having some built in space for kids to be able to process this. And I think another thing that helps with decision fatigue and like the cognitive overload that I think everybody's experiencing and can be particularly precarious for all the kids you're working with who are in their adolescence. Cause when you layer the construction of the adolescent brain on top of decision fatigue, it gets very fraught very quickly. So I think the other thing that we know is access to very, very clear information so that kids know what are the routines, what's the day going to look like, what are the expectations, if they're having a hard time focusing, right, if they're having a hard time staying on track, what can they do? And I think some acknowledgement up front about, hey, everybody's going to, again, have experiences differently. But we know that this was an unbelievable experience across the board. And you might have a hard time focusing. You might have a hard time remembering things. You might have a hard time getting your things turned in on time. And so, you know, in this classroom, we want just a policy of just communicate in an upfront way about how you're actually doing and what you need. And we want to make sure that you're not having to front that everything's okay when it's actually not okay. So like that access to accurate information and then acknowledging like, here's some of the things that you might experience that's absolutely to be expected. And, you know, like harm reduction, right? Like you can come to us and tell us what you need to and that you won't kind of get in trouble for anything if you're not getting your stuff in on time or, or whatnot. Those are some of the initial practices And then I think the other thing, and again, this is going to be much easier said than done, but there's many ways to bear witness both to the pandemic and to the structural supremacy that is surfacing so much right now. I do think talking with kids about being very intentional and mindful with their access to the news and social media. So having conversations with them about if you're on social media or you're watching the news to bear witness that there's any number of ways to do that, but that one of the most sure ways to kind of dial down a sense of overwhelm is being really intentional about how much time, if at all, you're spending on social media and how you're accessing the news. So those are some things we know that could be helpful. Absolutely. And so with that, and just considering all of your work in this field and all the expertise that you carry, Any closing thoughts or just messages um, to the school community? I would just want to emphasize that no matter what you're feeling and what you're experiencing, please really remember that you're not alone and that anybody can reach out to us at our institute and we absolutely avail ourselves. And If you feel numb, if you feel like you just are in a total just state of depression with everything that's your face, if you feel just consistently that you're failing, like you're never doing enough in the classroom, in school, on the home front, you know, whatever it is you're experiencing, I promise you, like, I have a visual of that (laughs) in what I talk about and that you're in really, really, really good company. So I would really want folks to know that I appreciate 
their dedication and their commitment and the expectations they have of themselves and just in any ways that they might be feeling sub impeccable in all of this and really challenged by all of this, that they're in very, very good company, that they're not alone and that there are resources for them. And I certainly avail myself in our Institute and, you know, that they would reach out and just get a hand from anywhere that feels like it can be, that it can be helpful for them. And to know that this is going to continue to unfold for some time. So pulling in practices that feel sustainable to them, I think are imperative. Thinking about day one, a trauma-informed reopening of schools is a proud part of the IB Voices podcast. To listen to more stories from the schools, students, and educators in the International Baccalaureate Program, subscribe to IB Voices on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about the IB, including how to become an IB school, visit ibo.org. Thanks for listening.